You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Joining me right now is a strong leader in Commissioner Tim Eccles. He is a guy that goes out and uh, gets ahead of the curve on things and has been a servant at the Public Service Commissioner for a number of years. So I asked you here this morning, we're going to talk about Plant Vogel. But first, I want to talk about what happened in December, because I think it's really important for people to understand how we managed through this, this cold snap we had right around Christmas. And, um, of course, for a lot of people, I mean, I know that uh, my my son-in-law, um, I'm sorry, my son and daughter-in-law had a house down in Florida that we had to go down and help make repairs on because they had frozen pipes down in Florida during that period of time. There are restaurants here in Gainesville that are still doing repairs based on uh, things that happen. I know at my in-law's home, there was a pipe burst that had to be fixed during that period of time. So it was a... A unique situation, even though we have cold weather from time to time, but it was very cold for an extended period of time, and pretty much we kept the power on. Yeah, I, w- I would rather be apologizing for th- for plants going overtime and costing a little bit more than apologize to people for an entire grid going down. I mean, we Tennessee had a big issue during this exact same time. And, of course, Texas had the issue a couple of years ago. And then California routinely in August, as things are, are really hot, they're begging people not to do laundry, turn the air condition off, don't charge your electric car. And so I, I, we, we have a big reserve margin. And that really served us well in December because, Martha, we used every single every, every single electron of power that we could find. So when something like this happens, I mean, you're the public service commissioner. Uh, does Is there a, a process where Georgia Power or the EMCs notify you all what they're about to do? Or are you all just aware of what they are, what their process is? You know, we're kind of the coaches in this. If you think about, you know, a UGA football game, right, with the offensive coordinator up in the box and the coaches on the sidelines, Georgia Power and, and their team, they're, they're the players on the field. They're out there trying to keep everybody on. If you've got trees going down over lines, they're out there fixing them. So we set the game plan at the commission. So, you know, in front of me here is a list of all the interruptible companies that have agreed to be interrupted in exchange for financial consideration. So we have a bunch of these. I can't I can't name these on the air. We also, Martha, have 51 items in our in our stack, so to speak, from the most efficient, like Plant Vogel units one and two down to the very least efficient thing that we might have, which might be a couple of oil generators somewhere. Uh, so, And we turn those on based on efficiency and cost. But in December, on Christmas Eve and the day before, we were using everything, no matter how inefficient it was, no matter how dirty it was, because we needed the electrons. And when you say interruptible businesses, just so people understand what that means, is that when the, you're at this peak use, and this is peak is almost like not the word to use, it was beyond peak use, they are willing to be turned off for a period of time so that you can use that energy somewhere else. Yeah, they sign a contract and they get a energy rate based on their willingness to to curtail. So the curtailment happened on Friday um, of Christmas weekend. Um, and so that would have been when they were they would have been out of business and not being able to, you know, print paper or process chickens or whatever, you know, whatever their business model was. When I guess good for them, it was probably the slowest weekend for them of the year for this to happen. So it probably didn't inter- interrupt as much of their business. No, and employees probably loved it because they got an <laughs> extra day, uh, extra day on the Christmas weekend. So but. Martha, the problem, you know, on all of this is if you're having to roll families off, if houses are going down, uh, and this is even worse if you run out of gas, a, a natural gas, because when a furnace goes out, 
they just can't turn it on at the AGL headquarters. They actually have to send a person out there and light, relight the pilot light in person. So it's important for us to both both have the, the, the molecules, like from Liberty Gas here in Gainesville, AGL around the state, as well as Georgia Power, all these EMCs, all these cities that are serving. Uh, it's, it's, it's a mammoth job, and it's something that people really take for granted you can join us on the phones at 770-535-2911 you can also talk and text on that line it's the xswdun talk and text line presented by mnr rental yeah it was a crazy time really i mean we uh, didn't have a house full of people that weekend because we've kind of gotten in the the routine that we get together the week after Christmas because our children now have children and they live all over the country. And so we get to where we can get, but generally we are all together the week after Christmas. And that's sort of when our Christmas celebration is. I have learned when I have daughter-in-laws, you have to be flexible about the schedule, right? I have seven children, so I can really appreciate that. Yes, that's right. So you got to do what works for them. So for us, it was really just us. But of course, we have 90-year-old in-laws who are are living independently. And so we had to worry about them too and be sure that they had what they needed because but it but as far as I could tell we had very few power power outages as a result of the cold. Yeah, there was some high winds in certain parts of the state and you know when you when you have wind and it knocks anything on that top power line, you get a blink if if a stick just hits it right off of a tree, it's going to blink it. But if a tree goes down, right, and then takes that line down, well, everything on that circuit's going to be down, and you've got to then be able to send a truck out there quickly, get that line out of the road, reset a new pole or whatever, remove the tree. I mean, this station has a generator backup just behind us. I'm parked up there by it. That's important because you you all can't afford to be down ever. You right. Know? So, so you you know, you test that generator weekly, and you make sure that that thing's on, and more and more people are are going and getting some backup if they have a business that can't afford to be interrupted. So I guess you would say we we managed well through this. So we've got the situation. It seems like more people should look at what we're doing and maybe repeat that in um, in California and Texas. And and it's not a red or a blue state thing. It's a grid thing. Well, I, I can tell you because I travel all over the country, all over the world, being a Southerner and having a Southern accent, we are looked down upon. I, I hate to say it, but people from the North and people from California, they kind of mock us. And that's, you know, and that's why that's why I really want to finish Plant Vogel because I, I want I'm proud of what Georgia's doing, that we're the only state, not California. They're not doing it. They're shutting nuclear power plants down. New York, they're shutting them down. We're the state that's building the highest tech facility in America. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's really, the more I look at it, it's cl- clean. It's renewable. It It seems like we've got, and we'll talk more about this in the next segment, it seems like we've got the... Um, uh, the the waste problem a little not completely solved but where you can reuse spent rods and things like that it seems like we're on the right track let's go to Paul in Gainesville hey Paul how you doing hey good morning I'm fine thank you uh, I know most of the calls you guys get about electric are not positive <laughs> about the electric companies however uh, during this cold snap I had my whole family ten people at my house when the electric went out and um, Got my generator set up, my kerosene heater set up, and by the time all that was in place, electric came back on. <laughs> uh, I, I left everything in place because you never know. And um, next day it went out again, and once again, about an hour later, it came back on. And I like to give kudos to Jackson Electric, who's my power company, who've always been responsive. And I'll tell you, I've been around a long time, and I've never work with an electric company that is better than Jackson Electric. Yeah, Paul, that's great. I'm a member of Jackson EMC as well, and they do a fantastic job. These smart meters that we have on our houses now, they really are fantastic because no longer do you have to call in and tell them that you're out. The meter is telling them, I'm out. This house is not, you know, this house is not functioning. And so it really has, it really has caused uh, the, the, 
the service, you know, reinstatement to, to speed up. So I'm so glad to hear this good report. I'll pass it along to Chip and all the guys over at um, Jackson EMC. Thanks for your call today, Paul. Let's go back to the phones and talk to Tion in Miami. Hey, Tion, how you doing? Yes, doing great um, this morning. Um, for many years, I've heard that, you know, nuclear is it's clean, um, it's efficient, but it's, it's also dangerous. Uh, I know that, you know, we all know the story about Three Mile Island and also what went on in Russia with Chernobyl. Um, I know down here in the state of Florida with Florida Power and Light, if anything can be said, um, I, I, I will say that FPNL, they've done a reasonably good job of keeping the, you know, the, the prices, you know, manageable. And I know with them down here, they've invested heavily in these solar panel fields and, um, they've, you know, along with natural gas and things like that. And I guess my, and I, and I would be for nuclear power, but the safety part of it, that's, that's the thing that I, that I think about the most. I would hope, you know, by now, perhaps maybe the technology would improve such that, well, and you, know, you really safety. can't, and you really can't put Three Mile Island in the same category with Chernobyl because the safety features worked at Three Mile Island. Um, Chernobyl, they were just not in place. But you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, certainly we can't afford any kind of nuclear accident every 15 years. The industry just can't survive that. So the Fukushima accident in Japan, the Chernobyl, both of those were major issues. You're right there. But, I mean, we've been running nuclear in Georgia since the mid-'80s, and we haven't had a single uh, incident. So I do think it can be done safely, and if you – you know, we have had other accidents at plants, uh, at coal plants, uh, where we've had, uh, where we have had people killed. Uh, so, I mean, all of this is dangerous. All of this is dangerous when you're talking about electricity, when you're talking about combustion, when you're talking about high pressure. Uh, and so that's why it's really important to spend the money on the operations and, you know, and maintenance of this equipment to make sure that you're really taking care of it. I do think you'll see Florida and some other states with do some of these small modular reactors, these these uh, less accident prone reactors of smaller water use, a sh- you know, a kind of a an evacuation zone that's much more condensed to just the power plant fence. Uh, I think you're going to see it because you can't close coal plants and natural gas plants and not replace them with something that's called dispatchable power. You've got to be able to dispatch it immediately when you need it. Yeah, Florida's got a lot of solar, so does Georgia, but you've got to add to that dispatchable power. Absolutely. Let's go back to the phones. Um, Tion, did you did that answer your question? Uh, uh, yes, I, I, I guess I, I, I hope I... Um, Again, the, the, the safety, you're right, all of it is, it is dangerous. I just hope that they can concentrate more upon it. I really don't know the internal structure with these rods and things and how they work and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, that would be my, my only concern, and I hope they continue to improve on that. Martha, after the, after the Fukushima accident, Westinghouse did a redesign on the AP-1000 to put water on top of the uh the unit three days worth of water that wasn't dependent on a generator running or having electricity you just basically pull you know open a valve and that that water comes out of that giant water tank on top of that unit to keep that fuel cool uh underwater that's what didn't happen at fukushima uh, it evaporated uh, you can't have you can't have that stuff out in the open air. Uh, so I think we've learned a lot of lessons, and I think we're going to be really glad that we built these units out there. So what is the timetable? Yeah, we're a hundred percent done with Unit Three. We are testing it, and if you you know most people haven't been to the plant, they they may think, oh well, it's just in a little building. No, I mean it's, it's thousands upon thousands of systems that have to be tested. Everything has to work properly. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a boron gas leak. Uh, had to fix that. Uh, you know, a, a month before that, we had a vibrating 
pipe that, that had to be relashed. Uh, and so as we go through the systems, Martha, and we find issues, we're getting them straight. The good news is, you know, we're not going to, you know, allow Georgia Power to put this into rates until everything has been working properly for 30 days. So we we have set up some safeguards, you know, as a commission to make sure that ratepayers, you know, are taken care of financially. We're going to do some prudency hearings with Georgia Power to look at all the overruns and to make sure, okay, who should pay for this, who's responsible for that. So there's a lot left to be done with this once the thing actually starts running. So we're, you know, we'll we'll spend all of next year probably in prudency hearings and just going through every little thing that's gone wrong and determining, okay, who's got to pay for this. And what do you foresee this? I mean, what should people expect once we get to this point that the power's actually being generated out of Plant Vogel? Well, certainly we're going to be in good shape if the federal government comes in and says you guys have to, you know, pay a penalty for these coal plants or other things. So having having the carbon-free power will protect us financially in the future. But certainly, uh, to your question, I mean, rates are going to go up once we put the capital cost for the reactors in, not unlike it would if we were building a gas plant or anything else. I realize we're in a place right now where the federal government does do things like penalize you for using coal and doing that kind of thing. But shouldn't we be in a like like you pointed out, we were in this week in December and we had to use everything that we had regardless. Shouldn't we be in an all in kind of energy that certainly we should be moving towards renewables? I mean, I know there's research going on all over the place on some amazing things that could change the face of all of this. But shouldn't we be all in on energy? Well, in in the United States, each state gets to determine what they do. And frankly, I'm glad about that. Right. So so Georgia. You know, Georgia decided we were going to build nuclear power plant, uh, plant, a uh, plant, uh, unit three and four. And we've gotten criticism for that from, you know, California and other places. Not so much now, though. I mean, I think you're even seeing the president of the United States message that nuclear plus solar plus batteries in the future is going to be important. So we have seen this shift from the federal government. I think you're going to see a lot more incentives uh, on nuclear power in the future as well. And I think it's the right thing to do. And if you really dig deep into nuclear power, um, you know, a lot of Three Mile Island was not an accident like Chernobyl. It should not be put in the same category. It actually, and at least all the research I've done on it, is that it showed that our safeguards worked. And even though it was, I think, a level five accident where Chernobyl was a level seven accident, um, that it shouldn't have just shut down nuclear power everywhere. I mean, and of all people, and I don't want to, I'm not going to kick President Carter while he's down. This is not a kick at all. But of all people, President Carter, being as knowledgeable about nuclear power as he was, I think he needed to explain it better. You know, back then, and I sat down with President Carter and had a conversation about reprocessing because I really wanted us to recycle nuclear fuel and... Uh, initially, when I sat down with him in 2011, he was against it. But I went back in 2018 uh, and uh, and asked again about it. If we did this the French way, would you be in favor of it? And, and to his credit, he had changed his mind on it. And it's just a matter of having enough states building new nuclear to justify reusing the fuel. Right now, there's plenty of, of uranium. Uh, that we don't need to recycle it, uh, and if we if we had a revival or a renaissance of nuclear power, it could be that we could begin using the waste product. We're just not in a place to do it right now. Well, and it's funny that you'd mentioned that about President Carter, that um, you, know, you spoke to him and then you went back and spoke to him. It's probably a real testament to the fact he has lived as long as he has, and of course we all know he's in hospice care right now. And and you know, for me personally, I think it's such a wonderful thing that he is being open about that because families need to have these discussions. And the fact that someone as high profile profile as he is has said he's going into hospice care, I think it's going to help a lot of American families. Uh, but it shows that he was 
the one of the reasons why he lived as long as he did is he was still thinking about things and he was still learning things and he still had interests. And that's what the key to a long life is, I think. One of the things he said to me is uh, the, the fighting between Pakistan and India or, or the, the, the issue of nuclear weapons over there at the time when he was president concerned him. And there was, I think, if you think about Let's just talk about hippies for a second that, you know, that the what was happening in the U.S. in the 70s uh, and and this anti-proliferation, anti-nuclear, anti-war um, that had an impact, I think, on just anything nuclear at all. Uh, where I think we're we're past that. The hippies are getting older. You know, they're not as concerned about all of this. And these kids coming along now, Martha, they're much more high tech. They're much more comfortable with any kind of technology, including nuclear. So that's why I really think you're going to see a renaissance of it because the young people aren't really afraid of it. I have been a believer in this project from the beginning. I know there have been cost overruns. I know there have been things related to companies going out of business. I know there's been almost everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, except actually in the construction of, you know what I mean, it's Mm -hmm. being constructed right. We haven't had any problems in that arena but in all the management stuff leading up to it so i it's been a challenge you know because those of us that think this is the right direction to go in there's been a lot of ability to throw slings and arrows at us yeah in 17 i mean we had to decide whether we were going to go or not go and i was sitting there you know with commissioner wise back then eaton mcdonald uh and and we were you know trying to decide okay do we just take the five billion that we've spent and just you know and leave this thing rusting until Jesus comes, which is what South Carolina decided to do. They threw in the towel. Um, And Moody's immediately downgraded the entire state. Uh, Their credit rating was impacted for the entire state. Uh, South Carolina. uh, South Carolina. So I think think moving forward was, you know, the right plan. It's just, I know for me, if I'm going to build something else like this in the future, I want I want the Department of Energy to say, you know what, George, if you're willing to do this, we'll guarantee that you don't have to spend over X amount. Uh, and if it goes over, then we're going to cover that. That That's what I'm comfortable with going forward. I just, I just don't think it's fair that we paid the learning curve for the world on this thing. Uh, and one state cannot do that by themselves. So, um, just on a process kind of issue, obviously we had the courts get involved in the PSC race at the end of the year, and mm-hmm. so Fitz Johnson is still on the Public Service Commission, but is there going to be some kind of new election for that race? Yeah, for both his and mine. For um, yours. Mine was delayed as well. Uh, I think the the issue on this, Martha, is that, and, and a lot of counties and cities have, uh, you have to live in a district, and you, maybe you run countywide or you run citywide. I think at issue here is that entire system in America. Um, is, is that does it disenfranchise people in certain dif- districts? Is it quote racist? Uh, and I think the Eleventh Circuit's decision, whenever that comes, and we're expecting it any day, um, uh, that it could have major implications. It'll be it'll be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And if the U.S. Supreme Court said that having to live in a district and run at large is, quote, racist, it's going to have ripples all across America. So who, who knows when we're actually going to be back on the ballot? Well, so it could be forever. We'll see. Let's go to the phones and talk to Alan and Rabin Gap. Hey, hey Alan, how you doing? Good morning, Martha. Uh, I'm joining the show late, so if I'm, you know, duplicating a topic or a subject that I've already discussed, I apologize in advance. But I was going to ask Mr. Eccles what what his thoughts or concerns are about um, just the passing off of the cost uh, to the consumers while the construction is is undergoing, obviously. But but and, and I guess more specifically, how is it that the is it is it right? Does he believe it's right to pass the cost on the consumers? But when say Georgia Power or Southern Company, you know the owner of Georgia Power, when they make profits, they don't necessarily share them with us. I mean, what what are his thoughts on that? Like, do, do, does yeah. does he agree with the return of equity guarantee? How did that sweetheart deal, in my opinion, sweetheart deal become, uh, you know, accepted? And I guess one last thought on it. Or one last component. Leaving time to answer. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. CEO pay of a monopoly, right? So these CEOs, 
you know, base salary is a couple hundred thousand, but their total compensation is, I mean, like Tom Fanning is, you know, tens of millions. This guy that's, I think, Womack, I mean, he's he's making five million. And these guys run monopolies, so it's not like they're competing for customers. So okay. you pick your yeah. you want to respond to. You need to have time to answer. Go yeah, ahead. that's a ton of questions. Uh, you, know, you know, let's let's start with the CEO pay. I mean, you know, what they pay their people you know, is up to them. Uh, I mean, we, I mean, we want that company to operate at a high level. We want them to get JD power awards. We want them to answer the phone on the first ring. We want their trucks to be working. We want their utility poles not to be dry rotted. So we, we like for that company to perform at a high level because when they do, we have happy consumers and rate payers. So there's, there's that. Let's go back to, quote, the sweetheart deal. There's nothing sweet about what's going on at Plant Vogel at all. Uh, I mean, the power company has taken a major hit. Their stock prices, their, you know, uh, their reputation. I mean, I mean, the delay on all this has been impactful, and they will be eating. They have already eaten quite a bit on this. They're going to eat some more on it. Um, but I think we're committed to finishing it because, I mean, we're we're 100 percent done with Unit 3 and we're, you know, we'll, in a year we'll be done with Unit 4. And so we can't, I, don't, I mean, once this is finished, we will settle up all of these overages and we'll look at them one at a time. Uh, and it's going to take a year to do it. So I know from your position, maybe you're going, wow, I mean, they're getting such a great deal, uh, but we're not we're not done with this yet. We're here with Tim Eccles, which is a public service commissioner. Uh, he's based out of Houston, Houston Georgia, mm-hmm. but you're not this district's representative, right? You represent a different district. Well, I represent the whole state right now until the court says that I don't, <laughs> That's right. right? So, That's right. I mean, voters from Hall County, from Decatur County, from St. Simons Island, they get to vote for every single commissioner. So all five commissioners represent the whole state right now. Absolutely. It could change. Absolutely. Okay, so Roy in Houston, I'm not sure what he means by this, but he says you can have GPT chat, check everything within seconds. Come on, man, get with the new age. I'm not sure what he's referring to No, I think he's just talking about being able to chat uh, off the app with Georgia Power and the My Power Usage uh, uh, portal that you can get. Uh, There's just a lot you can do without ever calling calling in to Georgia Power, you know, to get, you know, issues resolved. And I think he's just uh, a a technology fan, and kudos to him for doing that. So Roy uh, in Houston also said, kids today are so confused, you can just tell them that the new power identifies as fossil fuel, and they'll be cool with it. By the way, does Georgia Tech still have their little reactor? No, Georgia Georgia Tech does not have a working reactor anymore. Uh, they did have a, a, a just a tiny nuclear reactor that because they do have a nuclear engineering program at Georgia Tech. Um, so as does Texas A and M, MIT, you know some of the engineering schools. We got to train folks somewhere, right? You got you got to train them somewhere. That's right. And so we want to continue to grow that program. Uh, I mean Georgia Tech. I mean I'm a triple dog. I mean you're a UGA person as well. Uh, but I'm telling you, we we got a lot to be proud of with what goes on at Georgia Tech. Oh no doubt about it. I mean and really. You know, it was funny when I was on the alumni board at UGA, um, that was during the time the engineering school was really being built up at UGA. And part of the reason there was in order to get money and grant, you got to have a full, a full plethora of majors, including engineering. And the way it had sort of always been is they let Georgia Tech do all the heavy lifting in engineering. And there was an engineering school, but it wasn't that big. It is now rivals really with Georgia Tech as far as the number of engineers they're graduating and we need more engineers. I mean we're probably short of engineers across the country so uh, having more is good but you are absolutely right about what happens at Georgia Tech. One of my four children did go to Georgia Tech and and so I have I have conflicted loyalties there but not on football Saturdays. Georgia Tech is doing a lot with hydrogen as well and hydrogen is one of these fuel sources or fuel carriers that you know, the Department of Energy is going to spend a lot of money on hydrogen research. So I think you're going to see even Georgia Power and Atlanta Gas Light get involved with hydrogen, blending it with traditional methane, which we have done 
at 20% at Plant McDonough in Smyrna. It worked just fine. And so it just reduces that carbon footprint by 20% when you're putting it in there with traditional methane. Well, I have heard that that's kind of the next thing, that while there were some issues with hydrogen cells and all of that, as there always is with new forms of energy, working the bugs out, as you like to say, uh, I think that it's, I mean, I'm I'm very excited about the research that I'm reading on lots of different kinds of fuel sources. Listen, I mean, aren't we proud to be an American? Aren't we proud of American ingenuity? I mean, those 8,000 workers that worked at Plant Vogel, I mean, to be able to finish that, it's more complicated than a spaceship. Uh, to be able to finish that, uh, that that is something you can tell your grandkids about, that, hey, dad worked on this, mom worked on this. I mean, I'm proud that we are finishing this, and I'm, I'm proud that Georgia beat California and New York to the punch on this. I look forward to talking with you again. Commissioner Eccles, thanks for always being available. Yeah, great. Happy to. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and everybody who knows me knows I'm a bit of an Anglophile, and I love following the news across the pond. And uh, I am a woman of a certain age, so I got up to watch... Uh, then Prince Charles Mary Lady Diana. I've watched the funeral. I've watched all the pomp and circumstance related to the jubilees and celebrations. And, of course, the funerals of both the Duke of Edinburgh and the Queen. And um, in 1977, Prince Charles actually came to a University of Georgia football game when I was in college. And so we all thought we were going to meet a prince. So I thought I would talk to a prince of a man, Lee Cohen. He is the senior fellow at the Bow Group, and he's also an advisor on, uh, was an advisor on Great Britain to the U.S. House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee, and a great writer, by the way. Lee, welcome to the program. How are you? Well, Martha, I'm delighted. I've never been accused of being a prince, but I have met Her Majesty. I did have the uh, great honor of meeting Her Majesty the Queen. That is so amazing Um, because it is one of those things where people, I mean, I'm 63 years old. I don't mind saying I don't remember a time when she wasn't the queen. And uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of us have followed it throughout the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, like one of those people, didn't like Charles very much in the 80s and early 90s. And I think I, about 10 years ago, I saw a documentary that was done on some of his prince's trust work. And I thought to myself, hmm, maybe I've been wrong about this guy. And I think he's shown himself through these last few months and years to be very qualified to step into the role that he's about to step into. Well, I think you're absolutely right on that front. I think that the now king is, um, I think that he's not given his due. Um, and he's certain, you know, he's not been given his due as a father who cares deeply about his children. Um, he's sensitive. He's serious. He cares about the things he cares about. Um, and I think he's, and, and, Quite honestly, he had so many years to learn from the best. I think he's going to knock it out of the park as king. I think he's already started, and I'm very excited for his reign, and I'm very excited uh, for his wife to uh, be crowned alongside with him. Uh, What they're saying is that she'll no longer be called queen consort. She'll just be called queen. Well, I think it's going to be very exciting. So we're we're supposedly going to have this slim down version of the coronation, but I don't know how the Brits do anything that's slim down, right? Because the pomp and circumstance is at a level, even if it's slim down, that none of us have ever seen. So we're it looks like invitations went out last week. That's what I read in the press, and that uh, it'll be two thousand people, which for most people is a big party, but for the royals it is not. And uh, it should be interesting. So what should people expect from the coronation? Well, so much to talk about here. And you you touched on a lot of it. Um, 2,000 sounds like a lot, but it's a departure from the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, the king's mother, in 1953, when she actually had 8,000 people. 
Um, and part of that is um, in deference to the fact that the, the Charles has expressed an interest that the coronation not seem extravagant or excessive, particularly when, you know, people are smarting from uh, difficult economic circumstances. But as you said it, no one does pomp and circumstance better than the Brits. This has carried them through. Um, this has carried them through decline of empire because they, boy, can they put on a great pageant. And what's associated with that, I think, Martha, is um, a great deal of soft power. Um, As I said in a couple uh, opinion pieces that I wrote, uh, Britain certainly punches above its weight because of that pageantry and soft power aspect that, frankly, they are alone. There is no nation in the world that can match them. They might not have as many arms as we do. They might not spend as much on defense as we do, uh, but boy, uh, they are emblazoned in everyone's mind as being, uh, you know, off the charts in importance because of that pageantry pomp and circumstance. We're talking to Lee Cohen, and before we ask you the uh, $64,000 question about um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, I would like to find out just how did you get into doing what you're doing? Because you have a very interesting background. Uh, well, you're kind to say. Um, so I, uh, first of all, I was, I've been a lifelong student of British history and uh, the British monarchy. And um, that, that started from grade school. But then when I went to work for the Congress in the early 2000s and then uh, later for the actual Foreign Affairs Committee, I was given the portfolio of Western Europe. And of course, with my great love of Britain and my interest and and the fact that Britain is our staunchest ally, our ally that fights alongside us in every almost every major conflict of the 20th century. You know, there's Vietnam, certainly, uh, which is an outlier. Um, but um, and our great intelligence partner and, you know, the, the source of our democracies, Britain is really the source of the greatness of America, such as it still exists, in that uh, they gave birth to our um, emphasis on free free speech, representative government, uh, and, and so much else. And that goes back to William the Conqueror and Magna Carta and uh, the Bill of Rights of 1689. Americans so often think our freedoms were born when they signed the Declaration of Independence. Heck no, they go back to England, and which is the source of our greatness and our freedom. Well, you know, it's true, and if you if you look at the democracies that came out of the British Empire, if you will, I mean, you've got Australia, which is still under the crown, but still a great country, India, uh, the United States, I mean, they're they're huge democracies, and great things came out of it. Okay, so I I have followed all the drama with Harry and Meghan, and it seems to me that, you know, Harry could have done what he wanted to do, leave the royal family, and he could have, like, made a great career of doing motivational speaking on grief and getting over grief and losing his mother, one of the, one of the people that people still beloved, and... And he didn't do that. He took the complete opposite path, which he was going to take everybody down with him, it seems to me, anyway. Um, So he's probably going to get an invitation because Charles loves his son and is is being quiet. I think the best thing he can do for Harry is to be quiet. Um, But what do you think is going to happen? Well, first of all, my sources indicate that they've actually already been given invitations um you know and one of the obstacles there was harry has insisted stupefyingly that he before he can attend he will need to be given an apology well martha an apology for what it seems to me he's been the offender here he's been the person who's caused the uh the strife and and then he's turning around and asking for an apology it's just mind-boggling. It is the absolute 
dictionary personification of victimhood. Uh, you know, and let's face it that um, there are a lot, the couple, the Sussexes, uh, the Duchess and such as she still is, and Prince Harry, um, you know, the most interesting thing about them is their royal pedigree, which she married into and he had from birth. And absent that, uh, I don't think there's a lot left that makes them terribly interesting. So how long can they keep up this this uh, approach of victimhood and uh, betrayal and just shameful behavior? I mean, the, the Queen reports are now that she was suffering uh, in the last year of her life from bone cancer, and uh, Harry... Uh, went forward. They went forward with the Oprah interview uh, on on the trails of Harry's beloved grandfather, Prince Philip, uh, being being in hospital. And these are things that the British people, rightfully so, will never forgive them for. And I I can say that their popularity from I, from the polls that I've been consulting, the popularity worldwide, including the United States, has taken a great blow starting with the Oprah interview and plummeting even farther uh, with the publication. This may not be the right analogy, but this is the way I look at it. And this is when I advise people, when I'm hiring people, when I'm consulting with people about jobs, things like that, is that when you leave a job, which is basically what they did, right? They leave, you leave a job. You can complain about the previous job for about six months. After that, people want to know what you're going to do in the job you're in. And I think what they did is they overplayed their hand. You know, the, it should have stopped with the Oprah interview, and that was probably a step too far. But there shouldn't have been a book. There shouldn't have been a Netflix series. There shouldn't have been, certainly shouldn't have been back-to-back the way it was. And all it really seems like is you're just complaining about your life. And when they left the royal family, they had enough money even though it might not have been the level of money they would want to live the way they're living, they had enough money that if they'd managed it right, they could have lived forever and their children could have lived forever. And it is hard in the throes of an economic uh, problem if what they really wanted was privacy for the average person to be sympathetic to that. Well, no, you're absolutely right in everything that you say. I don't take issue with anything. Uh, but what people really don't like is people don't like hypocrites. People don't like uh, when people say one thing like they, they were escaping the glare of the publicity. Heck, heck, they're seeking with every shred of their being. They're seeking publicity, but they're seeking it on their own terms. And they they want to control it. They want to control the narrative. They want to control the timing. They want to control the sponsorships and the money coming in. I, look, I understand that. But um, I think it's absolutely unforgivable. His family is a family that it, it's it's known that the price of membership is a bit of discretion. And he's flagrantly, <laughs> flagrantly violated that and continues to. Well, and sharing private conversations is is like a real no-no in any family. Okay, my husband and I call it the cone of silence, okay? So we have grown children who are married and we have grandchildren. We might have opinions about any number of people in our family but we lent my husband and i we talk to each other about it but we don't offer the advice unless we're asked and other than and we don't talk about it outside of the family and that's just that's how you keep harmony in a big family which is really what they they're no different than any other family except that they're under the spotlight all the time that, that is that is very true, and you don't air your your dirty laundry in public. You certainly don't betray your family publicly. But where they are not like every other family is that you know his family is constitutionally uh, connected to a history of a thousand years. Uh, it, the the head of the family is also the head of state of of America's most important ally and of the motherland of America that gave us that greatness we talked about earlier. So it's not just another family. And, and, you know, but, but they've totally sold out to become celebrities. They've completely given up it in, in to my way of thinking, it is so much more impressive 
to be a member of a royal family, which is really a public servant, which is really someone who uh, carries out duties of diplomacy and uh, represents the nation and um, makes people feel connected to their history. And they've sold out to the almighty dollar. They're, none of that matters to them, it seems. No doubt about it. Lee Cohen, we're going to talk again, and I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Absolutely delighted. Thank you. Thank you. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and joining me right now is Elizabeth Slattery from Pacific Legal. To they, they were one of the, uh, I guess you were one of the plaintiffs in the case. Is that right? We filed one of the first challenges to to the plan. Um, our case was stuck in the lower courts, so we were not at the Supreme Got Court it. yesterday. Got it. So explain to people what's going on at the Supreme Court right now related to student loans. Sure. So there were two cases that made their way to the Supreme Court that the justices heard oral arguments on yesterday. One was brought by a group of states. Uh, challenging the Biden plan. And then another was brought by two individual plaintiffs who did not qualify for the full amount of loan cancellation. Um, so they're challenging the plan as well. So those are the two cases that the court heard yesterday. So what do you, what is the outcome? And obviously you don't know how they're going to vote, but what are they going to be voting on? So there are two two big questions. The first is, do any of the parties that are currently before the Supreme Court actually have standing to challenge this plan? So courts, you know, anyone can't just go into court and challenge any government policy that they don't like. You have to have uh, what's known as standing and showing an actual injury and that the court can redress that injury um, for your lawsuit to go forward. So the first issue is, do the states have standing and do the individual plaintiffs have standing? And then the, the bigger question is, does the HEROES Act authorize what the Biden administration is trying to do with the loan uh, loan cancellation program? And, you know, by their own admission, I mean, both President Biden and then when Nancy Pelosi was speaker, they both said they didn't think legally they had the right to do that, but they were going to do it anyway. Uh, that's correct. Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden both in the past said that the president didn't have the authority to do what uh, what the administration now claims that the president can do. And in fact, the the previous education secretary at the end of the Trump administration um, had the general counsel's office study this particular statute that the administration cites, the HEROES Act, to uh, to evaluate whether it does give the secretary the authority to cancel loans in this manner. And the, the Department of Education concluded that it did not have that authority at the time. But, of course, they changed their minds uh, when there was a, a new sheriff in town. Yeah, I do think it's so interesting because, look, here's, here's the thing. It's just the basic unfairness of this, okay? Roughly 20%, 22% of Americans get college degrees, okay? I don't know what percentage of that have to get student loans, but I don't think it's most. I think it's, it is probably substantial, but I don't think it's most. Um, you've got, that's a fairly small percentage of people, okay? And then you've got people like me, who my husband and I saved our entire lives uh, so that our children wouldn't have to take out student loans. We put our kids completely through college. I think two of my children in graduate school took out a little bit, but they paid it back. And it's just patently unfair to ask the American taxpayer to pay back the loans of such a small percentage of people. So that that really underscores, you know, putting aside whether this is a good policy or a bad policy, it underscores why this is a decision that the American people's representatives in Congress need to make. You know, this is an issue that Congress has considered and debated for years. And, you know, there hasn't there hasn't been traction uh, to pass legislation that would, uh, you know, cancel this this amount of, of debt, half a trillion dollars in debt. And, you know, I think that's the bigger question here is, we will will we allow the president to assume this authority when it's clearly in Congress's uh, you know the, a ball is in Congress's court. 
Right, because it's just, I mean, and it is patently unfair. As much as they can get out in front of the court and yell and scream about what they want and what they don't want, um, it it is patently unfair. You took out a loan. You signed a contract for that loan. You agreed to the terms to pay it back. Now, I will tell you, I do think the whole uh, interest, struct- interest payment structure is unfair, and that is a congressional issue. There's about 2.5% of the interest that's tacked onto student loans that is going to help fund the ACA. And the, the rates back when, I don't know what the rates are right now, but back when home loan rates were around 2 or 3%, student loan payback rates were 6 and 3 quarters percent. And so, you know, I think they were trying to make money on the backs of these students. But again, that's a congressional matter. That's not something the court should be deciding. That's right. And And further, you know, if Congress wanted to authorize this kind of a cancellation program, they know how to do it. You know, they set up the, the public service uh, loan forgiveness program, um, which, you know, which is another another program where if you if you take out a student loan and then you work for a qualifying organization for a certain number of years, a portion of your of your student loans are forgiven. They know how to do that. And they didn't use that language, the same language in the HEROES Act. They you know, the HEROES Act was uh, was meant to sort of ease some paperwork burdens, essentially, for service members and their families when they were deployed. You know, this was one of the many laws that was passed in the early days of the Iraq War. And, you know, it it was really all about making sure that service members wouldn't come back from a deployment and be in a worse financial position because they had been gone. Yeah, it is interesting to me how there's this attitude of, and I'm I'm sure I'm just being naive here, okay, Elizabeth, we're talking to Elizabeth Slattery from Pacific Legal, is this attitude that, okay, we want to do this, we don't think it's it, we have the legal authority to do it, let's see if we can find some law in the past that we can tack it onto and then force the issue instead of actually taking it up and debating it and passing a law related to it. That's right. And, you know, the Supreme Court has, uh, there have been several cases in recent years where the court has been getting frustrated with administrations that do just that, where they discover in an old statute some sort of new meaning uh, and, and use, use an old statute uh, in a way that it was never intended to be used and has never previously been used. You know, the HEROES Act has never been used to cancel any amount of loans. Uh, loan balances. It's been used to, you know, to pause payments, to pause interest from accruing, but never to cancel the underlying balance. No, I think you're absolutely right. So what do we need to do? Obviously, we got to wait for the Supreme Court, but how do we deal with this in our day-to-day lives? Well, you know, at this point, uh, we're waiting to see what the Supreme Court will, will have to say you know, oftentimes these really politically charged cases take them a while to decide, and the the court uh, won't conclude this term until the end of June. Um, so I think this could be one where we're going to be waiting until the end of June. Oh, yeah. um, but in terms of our everyday lives, you know, speaking out, contacting your members of Congress to make sure they know that if this is something that ends up being debated in Congress, that they, they know how you feel about it and, and how you want them to vote. Absolutely. Elizabeth Slattery, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.